Here we go. Let me know in chat if you all can hear me after some technical difficulties. We are back. I'm excited. And uh, yeah, we are back for a special Best Ball live stream. So hello, Best Ball Nation, Fantasy Football Nation. Making things a little different this time. Usually we're here doing a recorded podcast, discussing DFS. But today it's going to be drafting. It's going to be underdog. It's going to be all Best Ball focused. I'll recap the Best Ball regular season. We'll talk through the current state of my $50,000 bet with Dan Zach answer a lot of the questions that you all provided that you all asked on Twitter and the additional ones that come in from chat as well. This is going to be a fun one. All right, let's get to it right now. We are back. Hello. Hello. How is everyone doing? Oof. This is an exciting time. We've got the regular season best ball coming to a conclusion. We've got playoffs starting up. Uh, congrats to all those regular season winners. We already have someone taking down $500,000 who only did five drafts on the year. Props well done there. For me personally, uh, I've started kind of diving in, spending this time looking at, you know, putting out some fun tweets, looking at the data, looking to see like where there's maybe some leverage. Obviously, there's nothing we can do right now. So any sweating, any kind of analysis we do is just for the fun of it. But I mean, why not do it when we have this time only once a year? I'm sitting here. I got 260 live teams across DraftKings and underdog from various contests. So I haven't been grinding the actual individual teams, um, but doing more macro things there. And yeah, I think it's going to be pretty fun. So a lot of good questions that came from you all on Twitter as well. So I'll definitely try to touch on as many of those as possible. If you put some in chat too, I'll try to kind of catch those. But heads up, I will probably go through the Twitter ones first because I've got those kind of structured out on my sheet. And then after that, that's when start putting them in to the questions. If you put something and I miss it, post it again and I'll hopefully get to it all. I. So starting off overview on the $50,000 bet with Dan Zach. If you're not familiar with what this is, before the season, I made a bet with the uh, 2022 World Series Poker Player of the Year. Really smart guy. Definitely into the Sims. Star has been doing Sims from the uh, poker world and then started leveraging that in the fantasy football, in the DFS, the best ball space as well. And so put out a call on Twitter, just kind of a, hey, saw what was going on in the poker world with the heads up for roles, all of the kind of uh, high stakes bets there and thought it'd be pretty fun to do a similar one. On best ball, we discussed what was kind of the best strategy or structure of the bet so that we weren't adapting our strategy or changing our strategy from how we normally be drafting. And yeah, all the specific details are on my Twitter, but high level, uh, a third of the bet comes down to the regular season. Two thirds of the bet comes down to the total R, the average, the total ROI for your entries. Uh, for the regular season, Dan Zach advanced 27 out of 150 teams. So that's two above expected uh, at that 18%. Myself, I had 32 out of 122 teams. Uh, we took my non-streamed ones. If you did streamed, I would have had an extra five. Uh, but my total, my advance rate there was 26.2%. So I won the regular season part of the bet. So that's a third of it. And then have a nice head start going into the playoffs as I have you know, a decent amount more teams than him. And then also from a ROI he did not have any top 10K finishes, so it didn't get any of those kind of 250 or higher bounties. For me, I had five that were non-streamed uh, for a total of $2,400. My best team was 245th. Pretty solid team. Uh, feel pretty good about kind of how that ended out. 
My goal going into the year has always been like, hey, I want to aim for about 25%. If you get anywhere in the 20s, I think that's pretty solid. Uh, so to get that 26.2, feel pretty good there. Um, and I think Dan Zach probably ran a bit cold with his line of construction. Now, granted, he the way that he drafts definitely is a fragile mindset. And I mean, a lot of it is hyper fragile with running backs. He does a lot of 4RB teams. And when his highest owned running backs were Saquon, Jonathan Taylor, Tony Pollard, you know, like two of those missed a substantial amount of time. Tony Pollard was fine. Um, it, it's going to hurt him when he doesn't have you know depth at that position. Um, hopefully, we'll get a chance to talk through, talk to Dan kind of after all of this to get his thoughts if he's going to change things next year, um, if he stays with the same strategy, just you know how he feels this kind of went on his end. Because I think he'll tell you 18% is a little lower than what he was kind of hoping and aiming for. It's definitely lower than he's had in previous years. Uh, so whether the previous years were the outliers or whether this was the outlier, I'm not quite sure. I'm sure he'll have a take on that. But hopefully we'll get a pod with the two of us to discuss that. Uh, as for the final results of it, again, there's still two-thirds that are yet to be determined. I think because of the lead I have from the $2,400 in the regular season, he probably needs about a top 100, top 100 place team. Uh, so that would be making, making the finals. And then of the 445 or so that make the finals, he would have to finish in the top about 20% or so to make enough cash to, I think, have a chance at winning that. He can still obviously claw back some because that's not an all or nothing uh, two thirds bet. It's proportional, but um, I feel pretty good about where we are right now. And yeah. So if there's any questions on the actual Dan Zach bet, happy to go through those later on as well. But uh, let me go into and I can actually share a screen. So for those who are listening to the recorded podcast, I'll talk, try to talk through as much as possible. But we also have this on YouTube uh, where you can check out. Just go to my Twitter and you'll see a link. And there I will be showing um, my full results, advance rates for DraftKings and Underdog. So starting off for DraftKings. Um, let me make this a little easier for you all to see. So for the DraftKings, these are all of my entries. The two contests that I really went hardest on were the $10, you know, their main core contest that actually ended up having a little overlay, had over a million entries. And then the 555, uh, which is a very, very top heavy payout. It's a million to first, and I think it's 150K to second. So it's really, really important just to kind of have a chance at winning that overall. Um, but because of the rate back that they were doing and had some friends that helped stake me on this one, it felt like it was a worthwhile. And then I went after some of the single entry higher stakes ones as well. Kind of my conclusions here uh, from a DraftKings standpoint are did really well in the $10. Honestly, I think everyone who is listening to this, anyone who is in kind of the best ball streets, like that is the softest tournament there possibly is. Obviously, you know, the overlay had a some component there, but also you've got a ton of people who are playing basketball for the first time. They got a ticket from DraftKings and they're just trying it. They are not anywhere near as much, you know, drafting as much as what we see from the people who are kind of regular in the underdog space. So no question that that advance rate there of 30%, 45 out of 150, it's strong. It's there for a reason. Like, yeah, I think I did fine. Um, but overall, I thought like my DraftKings on DraftKings, I think I should have an edge for a couple of reasons. One of those is the weaker competition. One of those is the structure with regards to PPR, with regards to bonuses. I don't think there's enough people who are drafting and accounting for that. And a lot of the content is around the underdog space. And a lot of people use the same ranks. 
there without adjustment. And then I think the third one is because it's 20 rounds, the people who are most in the weeds, who are most paying attention to what's happening during the summer, I think that's where there's also a substantial edge that we are more able to realize when there's two extra rounds than when there's 18. And so grabbing guys in those last two rounds, like Kyron, like Zach Moss, like Trey McBride, uh, maybe Isaiah Likely, as we see come out, even though it may not have been an advanced rate one, but great for the playoffs. Uh, that's where I feel like we, who are most in the weeds and kind of paying attention to this, have a greater edge than the uh, more average than average drafter. Now, this year, though, I feel like I actually did, didn't do as well as I would have hoped from a DraftKings standpoint, and specifically with this 555, because my strategy was mostly to go with a three QB build and avoid the elite guys because QBs are not nearly as important on DraftKings since it's PPR. Uh, the bonus is because you can get a 300-yard bonus. The rushers that are at the top, it gets a little more balanced where your Kirk Cousins and those other guys who are drafted later can still hit those bonuses. It just isn't as important to draft QBs. So I was like, okay. Oh, and we started seeing them go like higher than they were going on underdog. It really didn't make sense other than to, you're just the – uh, your, your common, your average drafters were pushing them up the ranks. And because of the attrition with all the injuries, even though I was going with three QBs, a lot of those times I was going Anthony Richardson, Daniel Jones, Kirk Cousins, uh, maybe some Deshaun Watts, like all so, so many guys. And then I'm going to list them off that ended up getting hurt. That my late strategy ended up kind of the silver lining here is the teams that did advance. Uh, those teams look really good because they're the ones who survived the QB. So they probably had some Dak, maybe some Brock Purdy, maybe some Sam Howe. Obviously, across a large enough portfolio, I'm going to get enough of those. But they're also complemented with some really strong hits in the way that I was drafting and getting a lot of those late guys. I was higher than average on the Kyrie, on the Zach Moss, the McBride, the ones that I referenced. Uh, and so that's where I ended up with 29 out of 150 for the 555. So 19%, just a couple, um, four over. Uh, the expected randomness. And then from a high stakes standpoint, overall did pretty well there. Um, not really too much of a learning there. Probably just kind of got on the right side of variance for these high stakes ones where getting what, two or three out of my, trying to do some quick math real quick, did six in that 100 to 250 range and advanced. I guess it says two. I thought I got three, but Oh, well, maybe two or three. Um, but then also got my luxury box, the $2,000 one to advance there as well. So we'll continue to provide these updates. But overall, I thought like should have done better, honestly, on I expected to kind of do better on DraftKings, but the QB thing really, really hurt me with my strategy. And I don't think that's something I'm going to completely change next year. Uh, we can get into all the next year stuff later. All right, moving on to the underdog side of things. Let me just make sure. Um, all right, so for the underdog side, at the top of it is the best ball mania that I spoke of. So about 37 uh, um, overall out of the 150 there. That's 25% advance rate. Where I had the strongest success were in the early tournaments, the ones that really closed early on. So like that uh, big, uh, what was it? Yeah, big board actually was before the draft happened. And I had a 34% advance rate there. The rookies and sophomore had a 35% advance rate there, 53 going. And if you look at my, I think the reason why is because that early on, it's more advantageous to lean into your player takes and feel like their market is not efficient that early. Um, for example, Anthony Richardson, I think I ended up at 59% of him in the rookies and sophomores. He was being drafted after Will Levis. He was being drafted as probably like the fifth or sixth QB of just the rookies and sophomores. It didn't make any sense in my mind, given the upside that we could see out of Anthony Richardson. I went really heavy on it. 
I went heavy on De Devon Achan. I went heavy on Jordan Addison. I think it was trying to think up top of my head, but I think it was 59% Jordan Addison, over 50% Achan, uh, pretty high in Zay Flowers as well. And now there are years that I'm going to get wrong in those, but those were where I felt the most comfortable to kind of lean in and take chances, um, you know, take stands on those players. And it worked out well. I think overall from a DraftKings and underdog ended up seven to eight percent over expectation. So very happy on the year for how it all went. But hey, end of the day, none of this advance rate stuff matters if you can't get the teams to kind of advance through these playoffs. And all throughout was hoping that I was building the teams that were structured well to advance, but not just from an advance rate stance. Um, okay, I think that's a lot. Yeah, I have a couple of notes here that I was going through, but I think I touched on most of those. Um all right, before we get into the the Twitter questions there, happy to answer any if there is. Nathan Zach Fat on the advance rate such. Looking through chat. How is everyone doing? Good to see some familiar names in there. All right, cool, cool. I see a lot of questions that are going for like later on, so I will touch on those, but just want to make sure there weren't any specific to either my advance rates or the Dan Zach Fat. First question that came from Twitter, uh, I see Andrew in here, uh, Andrew Robin here as well in chat, but asked a few questions on Twitter and I thought they were good ones for discussion, so I'll touch on them. But who do you think the most low-owned but valuable player is? Um, let me go through. I have a list of kind of a few, and then maybe we can see like, hey, is there one that truly stands out? But starting off at the, at the QB position, top two that I'd say are you got Patrick Mahomes, has the upside only five and a half percent owned. If you had Patrick Mahomes, like it's not like you're missing out on the Tyreek or the Christian McCaffrey, which is good. So like, I think there's still some strong value in the Patrick Mahomes standpoint, given he's only five and a half percent owned. Uh, also I'll throw in Kyler Murray, 6.7% owned and drafted so late that the positional value, I mean, he costs you virtually nothing. You could have an absolute killer team. And then you're getting Kyler who's probably only projected for a, couple points less than the elite guys and he's still pretty rarely owned only 6.7 percent so those would be the two that i would say from the qb position running back uh kyron only 3.4 percent owned obviously his advance rate was very high for the people who did draft him but he just wasn't drafted in that many so only on less than four percent three and a third percent of teams uh, you know, I think he's the second highest projected running back this week. And most weeks going forward, he'll probably be top five of all the running backs. The way that he's being used on that team from a pure volume standpoint around the goal line, also in the passing game, it's hard to kind of find someone better than him. Other running backs that I throw out are Austin Eckler and Bijan. So Bijan, he gets the easiest playoff schedule of any running backs. He's got Carolina this week, 30. That's a third easiest matchup for running backs. Colts next, fourth easiest, and ending at Chicago. Chicago's actually getting a lot better. Um, they've been playing really good. If you listen to Evan Silva on one of the recent ETR pods, is talking about he thinks they're now a top five defense. So that's a tough, tougher uh, week 17 matchup for Bijan, but the other two are cakewalks. And then from an Eckler standpoint, only 4.2% owned. So just getting that level of uniqueness is huge. And then we throw in, like, what is that team going to look like tonight? There's no Keenan Allen. Could Austin Eckler just get a ton of drop-offs, like, dump-offs? Like, I wouldn't be shocked if this ends up being, like, Austin Eckler with 10 receptions for 72 yards and maybe 12 carries for 40 yards on the ground or something. You throw in a touchdown, and that's a really, really good game, especially in the DK side where your PPR. Um, so those are low-owned. 
I'll throw in others that I'd say, hey, these running backs are noteworthy because they're injury replacements. You've got Zeke at 8.4% as Ramondre's hurt. You've got Zimir White at 4.3% as Josh Jacobs is looking doubtful for the Thursday night game. You got Ty Chandler right before I went live. Alexander Madison was ruled out for this week. So whether or not they're going to trust Ty Chandler, he's at 5.6%, but you've got some solid upside there. And then I don't think we're going to see Isaiah Pacheco this weekend. So you're still looking at Jarek McKinnon at 6.4% and CEH at only 4%. So almost all of those are pretty low owned. And you know whether or not it's a one-week stint, whether it's multi-week, we'll see. But they're going to have substantially increased roles from what we've seen throughout the season. Wide receivers. There's a few here that I think are pretty strong. And what I'm looking at for wide receivers because it's not like running backs where like, hey, someone gets hurt, you just move into a larger role. It's more of just what is that kind of, you know, that player's talent, their role in the offense, and then ideally finding someone that is low owned. So you've got Justin Jefferson, only 2.9% of teams. Cooper Cup, I see Cam mentioned that in chat, 3.7% of teams. Puka at 4.7% of teams. Jamar Chase at 5.6%. And I'll throw in Garrett Wilson at 5.1% as well. I mean, hey, Zach Wilson, AFC Player of the Week last week. Uh, if he can actually be even below average, like ju- you know, just just not atrocious, the way that they're using Garrett Wilson and Brees, like major major uptick there. The challenge with the Justin Jefferson, the Cooper Cup, the Jamar Chase is if you have those, other than the very small amount of Cooper Cup near that in a draft, like you're not having Tyreek, you're not having CMC, you're not having CD Lamb. So while yes, they still could have upside, you still need to differentiate between, you know, from those other CMC, Tyreek, and CeeDee Lamb and AJ Brown and everyone else. So that's why if I'm looking for the most value, I also want to have like that later guy. But hey, Puka, Puka definitely fits in there, only 4.7%. And we know he's got substantial upside. And then on the tight end side of things. At the elite side, you've got the Kelsey. So I will say like, hey, getting a Mahomes and Kelsey stack, both of them only five and a half percent. That's got to be a high upside, high upside loan stack. But again, as I mentioned earlier, that's a first and a third round pick, maybe first and second. So you're really devoting a lot of capital and competing against the, you know, having to not only match, but make up ground against the other elite ones. So I would say for the tight end position, my favorites two would be Isaiah Likely and Trey McBride, five and a half and 6.3% respectively. Both are probably top five. Uh, McBride is probably top. I'm trying to go off the top of my head, but I would guess like McBride's probably projected for like the fourth highest tight end points this week. And Isaiah Likely's maybe around like seventh or eighth. Um, but also we saw like Likely had that huge game last week. If Lamar wants to keep using him, you get 80%, 90% of Mark Andrews. We love that. And McBride's just been an absolute beast. So of all of those, I think the player I've got to go with though is Kyron. Being owned at 3.4%. And being the second highest projected running back this week and probably top three, top five in the weeks following, going to be hard to beat as the kind of most low-owned but high-value player that you want. Another question here, which high advance rate players will kill the most teams? So high high advancement rate players, the ones who got you through, but I think that will most likely to kill the team. So I'll start off with three guys that are injured, the easy answers. Um, that have that potential. So you got Tyree Kill. We'll see if he plays. If he plays and he gives you a tight performance, obviously you can throw this out. But if he doesn't play or if weather in that wind and you don't trust the ankle and whatever, he's at 17.3% of teams. So that can definitely kill you because not only are you, you know, 
you're losing a first round guy. You're losing someone who probably carried your team through the, through the regular season to get there. So that hurts. Nico Collins, 15 and a half percent. Sounds like he will not play this week. TBD on what happens the next week or two after that. Devon Achan, this one doesn't sound that great either. Maybe it's turf throw. He's at 14.6%. Um, if he doesn't play, Raheem Mostert, who's the highest advanced rate player, like he's going to pull a lot of teams that are already in the playoffs and keep them going. And then the last one I'll go from an injury standpoint, Keenan Allen, 14.1% of teams. And we already got the announcement. He will not be playing in the Thursday night game. Losing a stud wide receiver like that, uh, it's it's going to hurt. It's going to hurt. Now, digging a little deeper, yes, injured ones are kind of the easy ones, but maybe let's a little deeper about maybe current role or schedule or such for the QB position. I go with Tua. So Tua is the fourth highest on QB, 11.2%, and he's got that brutal schedule that we've been talking about for the Dolphins all year. He gets the Jets, he gets the Cowboys, he gets the Ravens. None of those are fun matchups. Maybe the Ravens aren't as brutal as they were in the first half of the season, but still, you don't want to go against any of those. So while I think like a healthy Tyreek can maybe survive those, uh, I think like, you know, hey, if they take it more to a ground game, maybe the running game can survive. I think from a QB wise, like too, especially with what we've seen out of Tyreek with this injury, that's probably a, a high, high advanced right man player as the QB position. And with QB, if you've got Tua, there's a decent chance that you don't have another healthy quarterback because you probably didn't go to an elite guy. That'd be devoting a lot of draft capital. Some did, but like for the most part, most didn't. Most people who went to a probably went with another guy right around him. Maybe a Daniel Jones, maybe an Anthony Richardson, maybe a Deshaun Watson, maybe Kirk Cousins. I'm not sure. But in that scenario, if you get that bad game out of Tua, it's going to be hard to finish one out of 16 or one out of 12 in your pod. The advance. Running back position. This is a tough one because I've got a lot of this guy and I'm really bullish, but I'm going to go with Brian Robinson. So he's the sixth highest run owned running back at 13.1%, but he's got a tough, tough running back schedule. Fourth hardest running back schedule goes against the Rams, the Jets, and the 49ers. And when we think about running backs and kind of how, uh, how concerning our schedule matchups for someone like Brian Robinson, it's extremely concerning because as long as Antonio Gibson's healthy, Brian Robinson, he's got some in the passing game, but for the most part, like his games are when he can get the 20 plus touches and the, you know, the, uh, Washington, I was going to say the old Washington name, uh, the commanders are actually still in it. And so Brian Robinson has a major role, can get those touchdowns. But if they're getting behind against the Rams who put up points, if they're not able to run much against the Jets or the 49ers. That's not great for Brian Robinson. And he's coming off the injury from last game. He had a bye last week to recover. It looks like he will play, but... Still worth keeping in mind. All right. This one is not schedule related, but this is more usage and the way that we've kind of seen the role evolve. But I'll go Adam Thielen. He is the sixth highest wide receiver owned at 13.3%. And again, this isn't schedule, but his role has just changed. You know, how much he was used early on and how efficient he was, we're not seeing that anymore. I think some of it is Adam Thielen's old and the juice, the burst that he had at the beginning of the season, just not there anymore. And they can't count on. And because he doesn't have that, they're not actually targeting nearly as much. He's not that first read anymore. We're seeing more out of Jonathan Mingo. Also could be something with, we know how bad the Panthers are. We know that they're not in a contention this year. What's the point really of kind of, you know, hey, 
Thielen, let's go get you and make you the core of the offense. Like, that's not what the future is going to be. You've got young guys. You've got rookie Jonathan Mingo. He's the one who's getting all the targets the last two games. Makes more sense that Jonathan Mingo is going to be, you know, getting more of the first read looks. And so I think Adam Thielen, while he probably got you here, not someone you're excited about to have right now. And then I couldn't really find much of the tight end position. You could say Cole Komet's roles decreased once Justin Fields has come back. Um, Taysom has some injury risks. Don Kincaid, his role may change with Dawson Knox back, but didn't change that much last week. I'm really stretching if I'm finding anyone at the tight end position. There's also no one like crazy high owned at the tight end position. Um, I think Laporta might be the highest owned tight end, which makes sense, but like I'm not crazy concerned there about anything. Um, so, all right, I'll go for that. All right, moving on. Next question. Best guess on point total you will need to advance in each round. I'm going to go, I think it's specific to underdogs. That's going to answer there. Thinking through. So the, the top 8% of teams, the cutoff there was like 60,000. So like 60,000 were like the top 8%. So I was looking at like how many points did the top 60,000 or whatever score on a weekly basis. And that 60,000 averaged around 142 points per a week. Now, there's no bye weeks. We have the best teams that are still alive. I think you've got to take into account that, okay, now, so you have a whole bunch of teams that averaged more than 142 points, and now you need to finish one out of 16 in your pod. It's not going to be easy. My guess is something around like 165 maybe, but so much also depends on, what happens on like the whole landscape for that week, not just like the dynamics of the players and the fantasy. I mean, if it's one of those high scoring weeks, we've seen on the DFS side of things, you could put up 170 and it's a min cash and GPPs. And then we've seen other weeks where 170 doesn't even finish in the top half of double ups. And so it all depends so much on like, is this just a high scoring week? Cold weather, likely going to be a little lower. Fewer starting QBs, likely going to be a little lower. But, I mean, 16 high-performing teams, I'm guessing you're going to need at least 160, maybe 165. Okay. Let's do Aaron Dyson asks, discuss advanced rates on DraftKings for the $10 milli. So Aaron did well in his, and he was curious kind of what to expect. What does that look like? How did I do? I touched a little on the top of the show, but to dive a little further. So the expected advanced rate, for Giraffe Kings is you know just top two out of 12 advance, that's 16.7%. Now, I think there are reasons to expect that majority of people who are maxing this out and are heavy in, the, you know, in this space, draft a lot, like should be doing a bit better than that 16.7%, especially on Giraffe Kings. Uh, the wild cards is the first thing that I referenced where wild cards gave people on average four extra teams per 150 entries. Now, what does this look like? So because the $10 did not fill, there were extra spots, wildcard spots that after they you know, advanced the top two from every group, there were still spots that needed to be filled. So they then went and saw, okay, how many of the, they didn't see, okay, we need this many. Let's go to the highest scoring teams that did not advance. And on average, that ended up being around four for 150 entries. So if regular advancing was 25 out of 150, that's that same rate as you know, hey, getting two out of 12, one out of six. Um, this would have bumped you to 29 out of 150. Now, if you then take into account that DraftKings has softer competition, many people are drafting for the first time, got that ticket, blah, blah, blah. 
all the things that I referenced earlier about the sharper, the 20 rounds, all that stuff. Like, I think you can maybe then say, okay, instead of 16.7, maybe you can, you know, reasonably get to like the 20%, just taking advantage of the, uh, the, the, the noobs we'll say. And then with the, uh, extra teams, maybe something like 22%. And so, Hey, if you can get above that 22%, that's great. As I mentioned, I got 45, I got 30. I'm very, you know, I'm happy about that. Um, but I think like, I would say majority of people who are sharp and grinding the content and using ranks and using ETR ranks and watching shows and such probably over time will do better on the DK $10 billy contest. And if you're going to figure out how to like devote your time and maybe you don't have the largest bankroll, this is where I would hundred percent say like, this is the softest contest. Uh, and it's a pretty flat payout. It's still really hard to realize your, um, you know, expect your, to realize your actual expected value because it's such a large tournament but I still think it's pretty solid. All right, next question from at Mike Speck and then also at Indy Illinois. Tough one. Um, Both asked very similar questions. Are teams with no live tight ends dead? And one asked, are teams with no live QBs dead? So I'll start with the tight end. Are you dead to advance each round with you don't have a live tight end? I'm going to say no, especially not on underdog. Um, We could have a week where there's just no tight end that separates him. And I think, what, week one, when Hunter Henry got a touchdown, I feel like he was the top scoring tight end and he only put up like a 12 or something. Um, maybe 13, I don't know, maybe a little high. But like, it wasn't that high. So like, you can definitely survive. Now, are you likely going, you know, are you going to win it all? Can you beat out 440 some other teams and advance two weeks without a tight end? I'm going to say that's probably not happening. Maybe I'd say less than one, you know, pretty, pretty close to that 0%. Um, but can you definitely advance out of the round? Yeah, I think that's feasible, especially on underdog DraftKings. Harder because just harder to take zeros over there. Um, a tight end that goes seven for 70 on underdog, that's only what, 10 and a half points, but that's already 14 on DraftKings. Just feels like a large amount. All right, QBs. Yeah, sorry. If you don't have any QBs alive right now, like I... I think it's extremely, extremely unlikely that you finish out of your pod. Um, maybe there's a small chance, but extremely long shot. Um, QB is just too consistent of scoring. Too many of the elite guys are healthy to kind of separate. So very, very, very unlikely. If someone advances out of their pod with a dead QB for this week, you know, I'm sure we'll see like a screenshot or two. Maybe it happens one or two. But if any of you that are listening or whatever, if you do it, congratulations. Show me a screenshot. I would love to see it. All right. Next question. At a word on life, ask what are your top stacks you want going into the playoffs? Right, this was a good one. This is a fun one. I thought through this one for a bit. I considered Mahomes Kelsey, you know, low owned, obviously has very high upside. But as I mentioned, if you stack them, that's a first and a third, a first and a second. You're giving up a lot of the other elite guys like Tyreek, CMC, Lamb, etc. So I'm probably not going to choose that as my top choice. One potential that I really considered was the Justin Fields and DJ Moore. Justin Fields is a fourth rounder, 6.6% ownership. DJ Moore is late third. A lot of people got them on the late third, fourth combo, 12.7% ownership. We know how much they're upside and kind of, hey, if DJ Moore has a great day, then we feel that Justin Fields definitely has a great day because that means he's getting it done in the air. And we know he's already likely to get it down to the ground. He's running more than 10 times a game since he came back from the injury. So that's a really, I'd say, a high upside one and not the highest owned. But, and so I like that one. I'd probably say that second. But my answer would actually be going Kyler and Trey McBride. Kyler at 6.7%, Trey McBride at 6.3%. I 
McBride continues to be one of the top tight ends and weekly projections. We've seen him do on the field. We know Kyler kind of has that connection with him. And Kyler's not too far behind the elite QBs from a projected point standpoint, still has that rushing upside as well. And most importantly, these guys could have been drafted in the last round. You might have gotten Kyler in the 16th, McBride in the 18th. So you've got your onesie positions completely full in the 16th and 18th. And now you've got all the other possibilities to fill out the running backs and wide receivers. Those could be really, really deadly teams if anyone has those. So that would be my top uh, stack if I, you know, if I could have. And then not the question, but my guess for the stack that ends up winning the best ball tourneys is a little different than this because for me personally, I would rather on my team have the Arizona one because of, you know, uh, the uniqueness aspects, but what I think ends up winning, I'm going to go San Francisco. Uh, they have high enough advance rates that even if they have a really bad week, enough teams will probably have other people on their team that kind of propel those San Francisco ones through. And they have an absolute dream matchup going against Washington in week 17. Washington's defense pretty much has given up. It's really, really bad. And this is a game that San Francisco most likely is going to be still competing for that one seed. They definitely won't have, I don't know, they highly, highly, highly unlikely won't have clinched the one seed at that point. And it's pretty likely that they're still in contention for it at that point. So I'm expecting they're coming out guns blazing. I don't know who it's going to be paired with. It might be Purdy with Kittle or Ayuk or Debo or maybe a three-person with CMC as well. I don't know. But I think a San Francisco stack is the one that ends up winning it. All right. Next question from at generic MLB player. This is the last one. I saw a, question, a couple questions in chat. I'll try to go through. If anyone else has questions in chat, feel free to put those in. Uh, but what is the strategy of going all in on a guy or leveling out exposure? He thought Kyron was the best late round pick all summer, but didn't want to put all of his eggs in one basket. So it didn't go all in. Right, my take on this is let's start off with kind of when we're thinking about all of our eggs in one basket, I'm far more willing to completely fade a player than go all in to begin with. So for example, I completely faded Ramondre. I think I ended up with a zero or one of him this year because of the other players that were going around him, the risk that I thought came with that team dynamic and their desire to bring in another running back to actually play. Like I had my reasons and I felt like, okay, confident that there was just too much risk for this player. I'm going to fade it. Last year, I did the same thing with Justin Herbert. That I think is a reasonable strategy, especially at any point in the draft. But if you're going all in on a player, especially early on, that means you're completely neglecting. You're saying no to between six to 12 other players, which is extremely risky. And so let's say, you know, you love Brees Hall in the third round and you thought that he had uh, that amazing upside and was going to be the guy you needed. And so you're like, I'm going to grab 50, 70, 80%, whatever it is, 100% of him. Not only are you making a bet then on Brees, but you're also making a bet on every single other player around him. That's Keenan Allen. That's Josh Jacobs. That's Jonathan Taylor. That's Ramondre. That's whoever the other wide receivers are. Maybe some of the QBs and stuff, Justin Fields, DJ Moore. You're making a bet that those guys are not going to be the guys you need. And so for me, that is substantially riskier when I also like, and at the top of drafts, I think it is near, I think it's almost impossible. I think it's extremely, extremely unlikely that someone has so much confidence 
and someone versus, versus others around them at that point in the draft and one individual player, that it's worth doing that. Now, I made that qualifier because in the example that you gave with Kyron, I think as we get later into drafts, I think it changes. That's the more I am willing to go very, very strong on a player. If you've got a strong read on a very late guy, go for it. So I think the difference between like having a very strong lead on read on someone like Brees Hall versus Kyron is the amount of press, the coverage, the expectation, the projections around Brees Hall, like it's pretty clear. You have enough attention here that it's very hard to say like you're seeing something that instead of a third, he should be a first rounder in that level of edge. I think as you get to the, you know, those later rounds, the Kyron example, the Puka example, if you feel like you see something the market's not seeing, there's not nearly enough attention of around there. And there's so much more upside about getting an 18th round, a 70-16th round that hits right than the third rounder that maybe should have been a second or a first rounder. So what I'm here to say is like, I personally still wouldn't go like crazy over, like, I don't know, usually I don't go over 25%. If I really thought that I had that edge in an 18th rounder, probably willing to go up to maybe 30 or 40, because if you miss on that, you know, 18th rounder, you're not really hurting your team. You're just hurting your opportunity that you missed out on maybe that other 18th rounder, which is really hard to get anyways. So if you want to go late in those, I'm all fully supportive of it. And yeah, Kyron, Puka, obviously great. Tank Dell, obviously great examples that all worked out this year. Okay, those are all the Twitter questions that we had. We are coming up. This has been fun. This has been fun. Let me go through some chat questions, see if I see anything here. Um, all right, Joseph, 38 of 120. Congratulations. That's good. That's pretty solid. Um, Andrew asking from a, like a technical, where can I see who has the most of X player on the advanced teams? Uh, the bbmdb.com tool. If you go to their, I think there's like an exposures tab there. Um, there's a way to kind of just see. All right, go to, um, I'm on there right now, so I'm playing with it. But if I did AJ Brown, I'm typing in him, looking to see. Nah, it's going slow right now. But if you, I'm pretty sure on the bbmdb.com website, you can see who has the most of various players. I know earlier you were able to do that, but it's not really loading for me right now, so I can't say anything. Um, Preston, good luck to you and a few of the same pods. If I don't win, I hope it's you. Um, all right, let's see. JGFC asking, if you could be 100% any player these next three weeks, who would that player be? Yeah, I'd have to go Kyron Williams. Um, I mean, he's just so low owned, has so much high upside given he's projected to be second to third to fourth most for any week. Um, he's has the true definition of could be a league winner here and at low ownership. So I, I think that's gotta be it. Let's go. Um, and then Joseph following up to my question with regards to the going all out asking, when would you consider okay to start ha hammering round 15 plus? Yeah, I, I think so. Um, I mean, if you know you can get him in the 18th, go the 18th. If you are feel that confident and you want to grab him in the 17th, go in the 17th. My biggest lesson that I learned this year, and I mentioned this was on, I was on a stream earlier in the week. My biggest lesson I learned is I need to be willing to forego value on a guy, especially late in drafts. If not. Just because I think that a guy has maybe a round or two, a couple rounds of value, doesn't mean I should immediately be choosing him. And I'll give Dawson Knox as the example. 
So Dawson Knox, I was confident that he was a value in best ball drafts because he was going in the 16th, 17th round. And I think that the market overweight, you know, the market said that, hey, Dalton Kincaid is going to become the starting tight end and Dawson Knox is going to lose his job. I thought, no, that's ridiculous. Based off what we know about Dalton Kincaid, what the Bills were saying, what I expected the role of Dawson Knox, I thought that there was a very likely, highly likely he was going to maintain his job and that Dalton Kincaid would also play a role and they would go through this formation where you have two tight ends on the field because I I was overweight and Dalton Kincaid too. I like that. And so I'm thinking, okay, the market, they're not, you know, they're overreacting and they're dropping Dawson Knox down. If we look at where Dawson Knox was the year before and we adjust for projections and such, like Dawson Knox is just a value. And instead of a 76th runner, he should be like a 14th. And I believe that was accurate. Now, the challenge, the problem there was, I didn't account for that Dawson Knox just had so little upside. And that when I'm taking Dawson Knox, yes, I'm getting value on that individual pick, but that small value that I'm gaining wasn't worth me taking a player that lacked substantial upside because we already know who Dawson Knox was. We've already seen him tied to Josh Allen in some great Josh Allen seasons and he has good seasons and like, but his upside was still probably like an 11th, 12th, 13th round pick when otherwise I could have been, I was, when I wasn't drafting Dawson Knox, I got a lot of high tight end. I mean, rookie tight ends that Jake Ferguson's a sophomore, but you got the Laporta, you got the Musgrave, you got sophomore McBride, you've got, I think Isaiah likely the sophomore, but like you have these other young guys who, if they get into the right role, could have explosive seasons. And instead, I was going with the safer Dawson Knox because I was so obsessed with that two rounds of value I was getting on Dawson Knox. And so that's something that I took as a learning for next year, just because I think the projection on this player in the market might be wrong it still may not be the right choice to choose them. And maybe the market was actually right there and they were letting him drop for the reasons that I wasn't seeing. And maybe that was my blind side. And while I thought the market was letting him fall because people thought Kincaid in reality, he was falling because he had no upside. Maybe that's actually true. Um, but that's one where like, I need, I think that's a place that I really want to focus on next year is not going for those safe spots just because it has value, but focusing still on the upside because Having a zero on your roster in the later rounds, like it really doesn't matter. It's not going to crush you. You can look at the guys who have zeros all year long. Um, Leonard Fournette is an example. And I think Leonard Fournette was still like a 14%, maybe 13 or 14% advance rate player just below random, just because it didn't actually matter that much. The key is if you could get the Mostert, the Puka, the... Achan, the Moss, the McBride, all of those guys that really, really put it out. Um, so, all right, that is it. Thank you, everyone, for all the questions. If there's any more in chat, throw them in. I'm happy to answer one more. Other than that, I will say, um, if this is your first time, like you're tuning on, on Twitter, go ahead, subscribe to the weekly podcast. Usually, I'm focused on more DFS, but given we're in the playoffs, I'll definitely be talking more of the best ball stuff too. To find it, just Google um, DraftKings Justin Herzig podcast, and it should pop up in any of the podcast stores. Um, all right, here's one more from friend Neil Farley. Neil, do you think owner percent is over-discussed right now? He goes, yes, I'd like a low-owned player who projects well, but high-owned players are generally higher for good reason. Pods also make the dynamic unique. Uh, yeah, I, I saw your conversation uh, on Twitter there, Neil, and I think I'm more in the camp that you are. Um, obviously, probably difficult to have a fully nuanced conversation on Twitter, so I'll try to keep my thoughts here. 
Um, but a lot of it comes down to, so we have Raheem Mostert, who is the highest uh, advance rate player right now. And, you know, there's some discussion on like, hey, is he, you know, way overdrafted that like, you know, he's not good for your teams or such. Um, I am of the opinion that like in this first round, 16, really like, okay, if you have the highest owned players and they go off, chances are only one to three other teams in your pod have that player. And to advance past 15 other people, a lot of it comes down to, do you have that one or two player combo that really goes off? And so all this other focus on the advance rate, it's not as important for at least this first pod because you're limited just that 15. And then the second one, you get a little more concentrated based off the based off that player that really went off. But the other players, like, again, overall exposure, overall ownership is not that important. When we get to the week 17 and you have that 445, it's now more like a DFS contest. That's where this ownership ownership really matters. So for me, the key is in thinking through how does the ownership of who's advanced right now going to, I say, waterfall, going to down, going to eventually lead into that week 17. And so if you do have Mostert having a huge game, he's going to continue to keep that kind of high percentage as we get to that week 17. Also, though, there's enough of these high-owned guys that, and I kind of mentioned it with the San Francisco stack earlier, even if San Francisco has a dud or two, there's enough people who have those that they can still advance to the finals, where if you want to use someone like Devontae Adams, if Devontae Adams has a really bad week tonight or two really bad weeks, you're likely to see none or virtually none of him in that finals because his draft capital is really expensive and there aren't that many of him. The nice thing is if you can get like, hey, the elite Devontae team here, well, you're getting a unique one for that first week or two probably, but also now you're getting to the finals and he's unique. The challenge becomes when you get like a mid-tier guy, I want to do like, let's use Fields and DJ Moore as an example because I have their percents right here where Fields is 6.6% of teams, DJ Moore is 12.7%. That's not that much. But if those two go off in a back-to-back weeks, they will now have substantial ownership. And that's where the ownership really matters because you're going to do some math in the spot right now, but 12.7 and 6.6 and a pot of 16, we can probably expect, they were kind of stacked together well. So I would guess that in each pod, you probably have around two people with a Fields DJ Moore stack. Um, So that is a sixth of the field. That's around 12,000 teams. Now, if that DJ Moore and Justin Fields absolutely go off, they put up like a 60 pointer together and we see, I don't know, a large amount of those advance 12,000, 50% of those advanced, you're at 6,000. Now 6,000 and whatever that next pot is when we just lost a 16th of the field, uh, we went from 160, 106, 12,000 teams down to like 8,000. This is when it's bad doing math in the spot, but the whole overarching theme here is that's where the concentration can really become high. And so it's thinking through the waterfall aspects. Yes, ownership kind of matters now, but only because it more so dictates what's going to happen in that week 17. So um, I'm happy to kind of think you know, think through, talk through that more. But yeah, I think overall, Neil, I'm, I'm on the same side that you were kind of talking through there. And when we get to week 17, that's where we'll really look at ownership percentage, get a feel for how much, you'll, you'll see how much they matter there and what they are right now just kind of has a bit more or less impact depending on the ownership now for likelihood of getting that week 17. 
that was a lot. I hate trying to do math on the spot. Decent chance that you end up screwing it up. But uh, appreciate everyone for joining. And uh, yeah, so subscribe to the weekly podcast. For those already, leave a rating and a review. Call it my Hanukkah, my Christmas present. Even my birthday is coming up, whatever it is. Good luck to everyone in the playoffs. It is a fun time to be doing best ball. Have a great rest of your weeks. GLGL, later.